deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Yard line. Here's a handoff to Kelvin Taylor. Hipping and ripping. Off to the left side of the 10. Inside to the 5. And down to the goal line. He's in. Taylor made. Touchdown, Gators. Harris in the pistol on play action. He drops the throw and he hangs one up. A deep ball down the field. It's caught by Brandon Powell. Right sideline near the pylon. And he is in for a touchdown. Oh, my. And that's it. The Gators win going away. On the Jim McElwain debut here in the Swamp tonight as the Gators beat New Mexico State by a final score of 61-13. to Hot off the heels of a glorious night in the Swamp, we welcome you to week two of Gator Tales. I'm Adam Schick, and before we get started, all of us here want to give a huge thanks to the Gator Nation for your incredible support of our launch last week. We saw thousands of plays on SoundCloud, flew up the charts on iTunes, and now we're available on Stitcher as well. We also loved hearing from you and encourage you to continue reaching out to us with your feedback and ideas for what you want to hear on the official podcast of the Florida Gators. You can email us at gatorspodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at gatorspodcast. But before this starts to sound too much like a Taylor Swift acceptance speech, I hear the music starting to play me off, so let's get to it. Coming up today, we'll chat with Mick Hubert about the history of two quarterback systems at Florida, go over X's and O's with defensive backs coach Kirk Callahan, preview East Carolina with Scott Carter, and hear from Jim McElwain as the Gators prepare for another night game in the Swamp. Also, at the end of today's show, we'll challenge you with Gator Tales trivia and give you a chance to win a gift card to the Gator Sports Shop. But first... The offensive line was one of the biggest question marks coming into the season, with four new starters in the trenches. But the fresh-faced unit held strong in their debut, anchoring an offense that put up a dazzling 606 yards and 61 points. One of those critical new cogs is redshirt sophomore Antonio Riles, a 6'4", 322-pound mountain hailing from Lawrenceville, Georgia. I spoke with Antonio while literally standing in the tunnel that the Gators charged out of in the opener, and that's naturally where our conversation began. I mean, coming out of the swamp was electrifying this week, you know, considering, you know, it was 90,227. 90, you know, just seeing the fans jump up and down, it's a great feeling to just see them back in here again for us to be playing in the swamp in front of the, a great crowd like that. Coach Mack talked about that first and foremost his press conference and said it really elevated the team. How does all the noise, all the support, how does that affect what you're doing on the field? I mean, it affects everything. You know, just knowing all these people come out here and they love the Gators and they want to support us and they want to see Coach Mack, you know, in the new regime. And just they're just excited as we are, you know, trying to see new things and stuff like that. So it's definitely a great feeling. You talk about the new regime. What's been the toughest part of the transition going from the previous coaching staff to this coaching staff? Nothing's been really tough. They made the, the transition, you know, very easy. There are things that we have to adjust to and things like that, but nobody was really complaining or anything. We all just really bought in, and it, it seems to be paying off. How much did it help to have Coach Summers stay on staff and have that part be the same? He was one of the reasons that I made my transition, so definitely, you know, coming over here, you know, with him and him staying here and him being able to support me and show me 
continuously what I need to do. You know, it was exciting having him back, you know, um, and he's a great coach. I mean, it, it showed last year. We had, what, four guys off the offensive line get drafted. I mean, he, he definitely knows what he's talking about. He had some years under his belt. So, I mean, it's not that hard to buy in to what he's saying. You redshirted your first year here. What did you learn in your redshirt year that helped you grow as a player? Uh, I mean, I learned a lot, you know what I'm saying? Reality kicks in. You know, it's not high school anymore. It, it doesn't matter how many stars you have or anything like that. You know, it really matters who wants and more, who knows what they're talking about, and who's willing to put in that work to play. When you made the switch from the defensive line to the offensive line, what inspired that, and what was the most challenging part? I mean, it was definitely challenging, you know, because that's not something that I wanted to do. I came here to play defense, but, you know, as I bought in and stuff, you know, they helped me get more comfortable and acquainted with the situation, and I had some great guys to look up to, you know, Chaz, Max, Trent, Hump, Timo, all those guys, you know what I'm saying? So it wasn't that hard, you know, just trying to just watch after them and see what they had to do and how they approached it. So it kind of made the situation a little bit easier. You guys left spring ball with only six scholarship offensive linemen. Now you've got close to 20. What's it been like getting all those new guys into the fold? I mean, we love having those new guys in here because they definitely came in here and they stepped up. They knew what they had to do, and they've been growing up fast. You know what I'm saying? They know what they had to do to get back on the field. They know they had the opportunity, so that's what I came here. And we're glad they did come, you know, because um, we needed them. We definitely got some reinforcements, and we're happy about it. And now we structured up a good rotation for our offensive line, and we're all excited. So much of great line play is about communication and cohesion. With such a new group that's still evolving, is there a way you accelerate that process? How do you get to where you want to be as quickly as possible? In the first couple of days of camp, we emphasize communication and stuff. So, I mean, we, we all get the gist of what we need to do as far as communicating with the quarterbacks or the tight ends or any other offensive linemen. So, you know, uh, that's something that we approach and um, we're, we're getting better at as we go. What do you think the biggest challenges are for this offensive line as you move forward through the season? Uh, I mean, just continuing to gel as an offensive line, you know, and getting better and, you know, saying catching on to a lot of things. You know, we haven't really been really exposed to things. You know, Tripp sees a lot of things that we might not see, but we're starting to see those things too, you know, and experience a lot more things. Cause the, as you know, during camp, you know, defense threw a lot of things at us, but, you know, we're just going to continue to adjust, and, and the more we learn, the better we're going to get. What are some of your best memories of your football career, whether it be youth, high school, up to now? What really stands out to you? Of course, the swamp stands out. You know, I love high school. There's nothing like Friday night lights. But, you know what I'm saying, our last couple of games have been night games. So it's like the swamp at night is just, it's just crazy. I mean, it's crazy all the time. But, you know, when those fireworks go off and the lights are on and you see all these people in here, there's no other feeling like it. You're surrounded by a lot of big guys in the old line. I'm curious, <laughs> which guy do you least want to challenge in the weight room? <laughs> I say Tripp and uh, Rashard, Desir Jones are probably like the, the strongest dudes in the weight room. I mean, they're all pretty strong, but... You know, as far as like lifting weight and stuff like that, Trips tremendously strong, and so is Rashad. Now, you guys aren't known for being particularly fast, but if you did have to race somebody, who are you going to race on your on your offensive line? Oh man, I have to say, Cam can scoot. You know, everybody, <laughs> you know, people don't really think he can, but he can he can scoot. You know, so it'd have to be out of uh, Trip and Cam. You guys are going out to dinner. You're picking up the check. Who are you not inviting on a night when you're picking up the check? <laughs> Sharp, most definitely. <laughs> I'm not taking Sharp or Sandifer. What kind of damage are they about to do if you're taking to dinner? Oh, man, uh, I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest pranksters on the team, guys like to have the most fun. Oh, man, uh, Jake McGee, without a doubt. He's one of the most uh, loving guys to be around. You know, he's going to bring you in and be around you and just interact with all of his teammates no matter who you are. So that's why I love Jake. 
We talked to him last week. He seemed kind of reserved. What, what does he do behind the scenes that maybe we don't know about? <laughs> Jake's a real fun guy, man. You know, it's fun being around him all the time. Uh, he's a bit of a loose cannon in the locker room. So, you know, he's, he's fun, and, he's, and he brings energy to the team. So does Tone, you know, Antonio Morrison as well. Love both of those guys. Coach has talked a lot about Antonio's recovery and just how miraculous it's been. How has that inspired the team, just to see him fight back from that knee injury? I uh, mean, I don't know anybody who can really come back from that, and I don't know how many months it was, but Tone is one of the hardest workers I've ever seen. You know, he comes in here every day. He's been in here since summer every day at like 5 o'clock in the morning just rehabbing. E- at like every single day I've seen him, you know, put in extra work. He'll probably come in here at 5 and leave at like 8 o'clock. So, I mean, he's definitely putting the work ethic, and he's one of the hardest workers in the weight room. So, you know, it's nothing for him to come back. You said before you started you're a big movie guy, and right now biopics are all the rage, straight out of Compton, movies like that. So if there's going to be a movie about Antonio Riles, who's going to play you? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't even know. I, I don't know. I don't know who would play me. I'll probably have to play me in a movie. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to play yourself? Yeah, i have to play myself. <laughs> what are some of your favorite movies? We're talking about that. Uh, Paid in Full, without a doubt. I like Belly, The Longest Yard, all the football movies, you know, like Remember the Titans, typical football movies, you know, just about all of those I love. So, you know, it's nameless. I'm about to give you a lot of power here. You're a concert promoter. You're putting together your own show. Who's your opening act and who's your headliner? One night only. Oh, man, I have to open with Chance. I have to bring Kendrick out there, Nipsey Hussle, Dom Kennedy, Future, Young Thug. I I don't know, man. There's so many people I can bring out. That would be a long concert, I'll tell you that. That's going to be an expensive concert to put on. So you got got a lot of people to pay that night. (laughs) Yeah, but it'll all be worth it. Final thing for you, this Saturday, East Carolina, what have you been emphasizing this week in practice as you get ready for this? You know, everybody was excited about the win, but we have to put that to the side and uh, get ready for ECU because, you know, um, they're coming back for revenge, and we know these guys are really going to want this game. They're used to being in this hostile environment, you know, like uh, when they beat Virginia Tech after Virginia Tech beat Ohio State. So we know what type of team they are. We can't just come out here and throw the Gator hat out and expect to win the game. You're definitely going to have to fight for it. We look forward to seeing great things the rest of the year from Antonio Riles and this young offensive line. One of the questions that remains is which quarterback they'll be tasked with protecting in the long term. But what if the answer is both? That's one of the topics we broached this week with the voice of the Gators, Mick Hubert. Let's first talk about the opener, a really special night in the swamp. What were your impressions of day one of the McIlwain era? Well, Adam, you're right. It was very exciting. And, you know, we've been used to seeing uh, a lot of empty seats around here. And I found out like Tuesday or Wednesday that there aren't really any tickets. I thought that's tremendous. And then to see most of them all show up, I mean, there was that crowd of 90,000 plus was pretty accurate. I mean, there were a lot of people there. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier, uh, it's not so important as to why they came, but how they felt when they left. And I think most people left thinking, wow, I mean, yeah, it was just New Mexico State. But on the other hand, they saw pass routes being run with precision, ball being thrown on rhythm, on time, receivers catching balls, only one drop pass, I think, only one penalty. They just looked like they were sharp, disciplined, well-coached, energetic. The offense looked like it was gaining confidence. I was encouraged by the offensive line play. And again, this is all tempered by the fact that this is a New Mexico State team that might only win two or three games for the course of the year. You have to understand that. But by and large, the way they came out and the way they looked it was just very very encouraging so it was an exciting opening game to and then go out and score 61 
more than anyone else has ever scored in a coaching debut. It was a great night for everybody. Many people have talked about feeling similar vibes to when Steve Spurrier walked in and just put a product on the field that people hadn't seen before. Did you see any parallels with this game as with Spurrier's debut? Well, it looked to me like our our receivers uh, had practiced an awful lot of catching the football. And you could see throwing the ball is a major focus in practice. Uh, It's something they work on repetitively over and over and over again. And, you know, you just can't be proficient at the throw game with the defenses the way they are today if you just don't work on it all the time. And it looked like they, they were working on it. Uh, various pass routes, various down and distance plays. Uh, the play calling I thought was outstanding. It wasn't always a pass when you thought it would be a pass. It wasn't always a run when you expected maybe it to be a run. They mixed it up. And so from that standpoint, you know, Spurrier was always well ahead of the defense in the 90s. It took six or seven or eight years, really, for the defenses in the SEC to catch up to what he was doing. And, you know, it looked like Jim McElwain had uh, really been a good disciple of Steve Spurrier, which I know he has been over the years. Obviously, a lot of offensive coaches, you know, that are 15, 20, 30 years younger than Steve grew up watching Steve Spurrier throw the football all over the field in Florida. And so you could see, could see a little bit of that. Snap to Harris on the left hash. Harris dropping back, looking, looking, now bouncing out to the right with the ball, throws the ball down the field. He's got Taylor at the 45, Kelvin Taylor the 30, inside the 30, inside the 25, spinning to the near side to the 20-yard line, inside to the 15, and finally brought down on a beautiful play that time. Kelvin Taylor on a catch and run. And the Gators get about 43 yards. Snap to Greer. Greer looks to throw down the middle. He's got a receiver wide open. It'll be a touchdown. Oh, my! Siante Lewis, he was wide open. He was quarantined and a touchdown. We saw two quarterbacks play. Both play extremely well. We'll see two quarterbacks again this weekend from what we've heard. So you've seen a lot of multi-quarterback systems in your time here. What have been some of the ones that have worked and then some of the ones that haven't? You know, one of the things you always hear, Adam, is that if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have any. And I'd never really fully bought into that. I understand the thought process in that. But as you mentioned, we, we've seen two quarterback systems work. Now, they don't last for 12 games. They don't last an entire season. But they can last for a certain period of time. And I think that's probably what is happening here. I don't know which direction it's going to go. But, you know, Spurrier was one that was uh, the Sparky Anderson of quarterbacks, if you will. Sparky had a quick hook for baseball pitchers, and uh, Steve wouldn't, wouldn't hesitate like he would in any other position. If you're the right guard, if you're the linebacker, if you've messed up, you're coming out. And that's the way Steve treated the quarterbacks. And we had the great win in Kentucky in 1993, where you know Doring's got a touchdown game that Danny Werfel threw the pass, but that was also the game Werfel and Terry Dean quarterback together and threw seven interceptions in the game, which still stands with an NCAA record for the winning team to have won a game despite throwing seven interceptions. Danny Werfel had not yet become the Danny Werfel that we know would be the Heisman Trophy winner. He was still struggling along. And uh, he helped us win some games. But it was Terry Dean that helped us really win the game in 1993, the, the SEC championship game. Of course, the most famous game, I guess, was in 1997 right here in the Swamp when Steve alternated Noah Brandeis and Doug Johnson on every single play. Every play, they were running quarterbacks in and out. Even in 1998, Jesse Palmer alternated a little bit with Doug Johnson. 
you know, there was a battle there for a while between Brock Berlin and Rex Grossman. Grossman obviously won the job and Berlin transferred. Really, it was Chris Leak that was the quarterback of the national championship team, but Tim Tebow was certainly a factor in that. Certainly short yardage, third down, fourth down, at goal line situation. He had his package of plays, and he was instrumental in that. But that was Chris Leak's team. So so they, they both coexisted there. And, you know, it, it happens from time to time around the country. But I don't think it's going to happen all year long. But I don't think there's anything wrong with it uh, when you're trying to find a guy. You're trying to give use these first two games, in our case this year, as uh, proving grounds and, and testing grounds for a new offense before we get into league play. So uh, I'm not surprised that both of them will get a shot again this week. This weekend is kind of a unique matchup in being the second time Florida's played East Carolina in the last three games. What are your memories of that Birmingham Bowl and how it relates to this game this weekend? I remember that I just wanted to win that game so badly. Uh, you know, I just I just really wanted to, for those players that had to endure the coaching change and go through a whole month of December in the state of flux. It would have been very easy for those guys really to just mail it in. And yet, they went out there and they played their tails off. I mean, Antonio Morrison was relentless and got hurt in the game. He, he wasn't a guy that was setting back. He was going out there and playing. And, you know, I look at that offense in East Carolina, and it was a really, really good offense. Where you got a quarterback like Shane Carden and Justin Hardy. Those two guys had 27 career touchdown catches and passes between them. That duo was was outstanding. And, and, and they were going up and down the field on us. It was kind of a bend but don't break deal for the Gators. Gave up like 536 yards in the game. On paper, you think it was a horrible effort. But really, it was a very solid effort in terms of uh, they ran 101 plays against us. <laughs> I mean, large of that because our offense was what it was. We're lucky to kind of squeeze out 28 points, although we got a pick six in that game. That's how we helped to win the game, 28-20. to 20. But I thought for as many times as the defense had to line up and play against that passing attack with those veteran guys who were playing, you know, professionally now, I thought they did a really good job. Although, you know, on paper, again, you look at, gosh, 500 yards, you got to be kidding me. They, came, they could have been very good, but we held them to 20 points, and that was the critical thing because that was an offense that was quite capable of going out and getting 40 and 50 every single game if you didn't play right. And I thought D.J. Durkin did a really good job of, of keeping the ship together, and the players really dug in there, and you know, I was so glad that, that we won that game. It was, it was one of the most exciting games that I remember of, of last season, even though it was a January 3rd game, two days after all the January 1 bowl games. And here we are in a rainy old stadium in Birmingham, uh, yet it was a lot of fun. So I, I remember that, and hopefully we'll beat them again on Saturday this week because it'll be the first time since 2000, be 15 years since we've had a chance to beat one team twice in the same calendar year. We got Auburn twice in 2000, so uh, hopefully we can get them twice. Thanks again to Mick, who gave us a pretty cool piece of trivia. In 2000, Florida crushed Auburn 38-7 in the Swamp on October 14th and then tamed the Tigers again the tune of 28-6 on December 2nd in the SEC Championship game. New defensive backs coach Kirk Callahan was still in his prep playing days at that time, starring as a DB at Armwood High School in Sefner, Florida. He went on to play at UCF before ultimately coaching at his alma mater. But in between his stints in Orlando, he was an intern for Urban Meyer and then a grad assistant for Will Muschamp in Gainesville. Jeff Cardozo caught up with Callahan to talk about the game plan for ECU and what it's like being back in the orange and blue. That's outstanding. Again, obviously this place is very special in my time here as a grad assistant and I obviously went off to UCF and had a great time there for three years and the fortunate to come back 
be back here at the Swamp. It just means a lot to me, and obviously with my family being close and, and the atmosphere and game day and all the great things that are here about the University of Florida. And you stroll back in and you take over a position that's obviously very strong and led by some guy named Hargraves, and we already saw what he can do in, in game one. Knowing that you have a guy like that, does it make it easier? Does it make it better? Like, What, what goes through your mind when you get to coach a guy like that? Again, obviously, when you got great players, you want to continue to sit there and, and try to sit there and perfect them. You know, we always strive for perfection, and that's the one thing you can sit there and whatever way we can tweak or sit there and help him put him in position to continue to keep making plays. That's what I want to do as a coach. And the great thing with working with a great player like himself, he's a guy that's always asking for more. You know, he wants more. He's like a sponge. So when you give him a little bit of dose of knowledge, he wants to sit there and build on it, and he, he always wants more, which is a great thing. Morgan fires the ball in traffic down the field, and it's going to be intercepted by Vernon Hargraves. Hargraves on a run back to the 35-yard line, to the 40, between the hash marks, very near sideline. Here comes Vernon, 40, 35, and finally brought down at the 30-yard line. Vernon Hargraves with the interception, the first of the year. So you've got some veterans on this, but you also got some young guys. What do the older guys help you in, in teaching these some of these younger guys to get ready to play some football? Uh, the great thing about having the, you know, obviously the veterans is that, that you could show them the way. They're always sitting there bringing these young guys along, and obviously those young guys are eventually going to grow up to be the older, the veterans, and they're going to be um, put the task to sit there to bring up along the new guys as well. So it's been great just showing them the way how things should be done the right way. Let's talk about uh, the opponent a little bit. Certainly the, the Gators are, are used to this team, but you lose a quarterback, you lose a receiver, you lose an offensive coordinator, but it's still an offensive system that is probably going to run a lot of plays, aren't they? Yeah, again, that, like we talked about and as a staff, I mean, they do a great job over there at ECU in terms of the offense that they run. They're going to put players in position to make plays, and, and even though they lost some uh, some great players, obviously, that graduated and moved on to the next level, the people that they caught you know, done, coming in have done a great job in terms of what they did last week on film, and obviously with the way they've recruited up there at ECU, obviously we're preparing for a good football game. How do you guys coach that? A lot of short routes. Is it attacking the football? Is it trying to jump routes? What's the game plan? Again, you try to sit there and look at all aspects and how we can put those guys in position in terms of whether what coverages we want to be in, in terms of challenging routes, whether we're playing press or we're playing off, in terms of certain situations, what are they doing on first and second down, what are they doing on third down, and we try to make everything look the same, and that at the end of the day, hopefully sit there and put them in a position to make a play, and hopefully the quarterback doesn't realize it and throws us a good one. Everybody that was in the swamp last week saw the uh, the money down and jumping up and down on the sidelines and obviously coach Collins brought that in is that something that you've kind of brought to those guys too because you guys were great on third down last week yeah again you know coach Mack always emphasizes to us as coaches to emphasize to our players is know the situation I mean situational football it's important you got to understand the certain types of where we're at in the game and again third down being one of the biggest parts of the football game and that's one of those things and so we try to sit there and put a tag on something that guys can relate to and we talk about well money down third down all right we got to win this is the money down this is where you make your money got to get off the field and that was one thing we stressed at back to spring through camp and obviously it showed up here on the first game and hopefully continue that here for the second game. You no, know, uh, you're obviously here as a grad assistant. You saw some great atmospheres here inside the swamp. What was it special the other night just uh, getting to be back on this coaching staff and just see how loud they were for game one? Yeah, it was really special. Again, the, the started at the Gator Walk. I thought the Gator Rock was uh, on and popping. I mean, there was fans everywhere screaming the names and it was great and obviously coming in here to the atmosphere at night in the swamp, it doesn't get much better than that. Don't forget to check out Jeff Cardozo and the rest of the gang on the Winn-Dixie pregame show beginning at 4 o'clock Saturday on the Gator IMG Sports Network. As we continue to break down the matchup this Saturday, I sat down with Gator's own senior writer Scott Carter to take a closer look at the Pirates and what we can mine from the Birmingham Bowl. Pay close attention during this conversation as you'll also hear comments from Coach Mack along the way. 
I started our chat by asking Scott what stood out most from the first game of the McIlwain era. You know, Adam, uh, to me, the efficiency that they displayed on offense is what caught my attention the most. I thought the uh, both quarterbacks, Treon Harris and Will Greer, they both looked good. But also, the passing game was in rhythm. The receivers were catching balls in stride. It was something that you could tell. They had worked a lot on the offense in the offseason leading up to uh, the opener in camp. And, you know, it came to fruition on Saturday night in a really crisply played game by the Gators, both sides. But the offense, it almost looked like night and day maybe from what we've seen. It was just very efficient. A lot of guys got involved. And both quarterbacks, it didn't matter who was in, the offense continued to move. I thought both quarterbacks had moments uh, that were really good. Uh, I thought Treon showed um, some escapability and in, in created big plays down the field, extended plays. I think that that's a real positive. I thought what Will did is coming in with that two-minute two uh, uh, drive right there before half, which actually was really big. And, and, and what do I mean by that? You know, we, we gave up a score, but then we answered. So much the attention around the opener was focused on the quarterbacks. They both ended up performing extremely well, so not really any clear separation there going forward, but a lot of good things to build on. Basically, after the game, Jim McElwain said, hey, you know, we're probably going to roll out that same plan against East Carolina. So I would expect to see both guys take significant snaps uh, on Saturday and, and see how the offense rallies around them like they did in the first game. I mean, a couple of things stood out to me, Adam. First of all, they had 14 players catch passes. That's a lot. They were distributing the ball very well between the receivers. The offensive line was hardly mentioned. That's always what you want for an offensive line. And this was one of the biggest question marks about this team coming into the season. So they, they stood up pretty well against a New Mexico team that probably is not as talented as East Carolina. So they'll be more challenged this week. And then third, I think just the fact that one penalty in a Florida game is very, very rare since 1977. Uh, that had been the last time that happened, so I don't even think you were around, Adam. But it just shows you that they've instilled some discipline in the players. Alex Anzalone, uh, linebacker, after the game, he talked about that. He says, well, this is what they're they're teaching us in practice. We're getting it, and uh, to go out and commit only one penalty, you, you don't do that accidentally. You've got to be cognizant of uh, what you're doing on the field. In addition to East Carolina playing Florida so close in the Birmingham Bowl, they're also a team last year, they went to Virginia Tech and they won. So they've proven they can go into difficult environments, not just compete, but also win, and, and that certainly has to have Florida's attention. Yeah, these teams met in the Birmingham Bowl, and uh, you know, for Florida it was a big game because a uh, winning season was on the line, and it came down to the end. Vernon Hargraves picked off Shane Carden's pass, and uh, Gators won 28-20, but Good news for Florida is Shane Carden is no longer there. He's no longer their quarterback. He threw 66 passes last year. Uh, East Carolina racked up 530-some yards in that game, and really they, they controlled much of the game offensively, but it was a bend-but-don't-break kind of defensive effort by the Gators. When they had to make plays, they did. Uh, if you remember, Dante Fowler had probably his best game of the season. But this team they're going to face on Saturday is a different East Carolina team. Uh, Ruffin McNeil's still there. He's still going to run an up-tempo offense, but instead of Cardin at quarterback, you're going to have newcomer uh, Blake Kemp. Made his debut last week against Towson in a 28-20 win. A pass for 230 yards. That game against Towson was probably closer than most uh, East Carolina folks thought it would be, but the kind of team that they bring here is going to be one that runs an up-tempo offense. And defensively, it's a, an off, or a defense that you figure Florida feels they can probably move the ball on considering Towson racked up 416 yards last week.
you know, this is a ball coach in Ruffin McNeil that, that I've got the utmost respect for. He's a, he's a guy I consider a friend. I love the way his team plays. They play with passion. They're, they're, they're physical. Uh, they fly around and play with a lot of speed. So the quarterback situation in East Carolina has been kind of fluid throughout the offseason, but at running back, Chris Harrison really stepped up for him. Four touchdowns against Towson really carried him to win that game. Yeah, he made the big plays in that game. Uh, and The guy who's uh, taken over as the workhorse in the backfield, 154 yards, 18 carries. As you mentioned, four of those went for touchdowns. Blake Kemp threw the ball 37 times. But it seemed like when they got in the red zone and needed a score, they turned to Hairston, and he got the job done. So he's a guy that, you know, Florida, they'll be very aware of. And you figure with the way the Florida defense has shown really consistently for several years now, they're pretty good about rising up to the challenge when a team does get into the red zone. But, you know, Hairston will probably be that guy that East Carolina goes to if they get down inside the 20 often. We've already seen Jim McElwain and how many players he's willing to put in the game and rotate people in and out. Florida's going to really need that against East Carolina because of that up-tempo, the challenges that's going to present to the Gator defense. Yes, uh, anytime you face an up-tempo offense, I mean, you're going to have to use more bodies, and luckily Florida has those. I mean, they played 10 guys in the secondary the other night alone. Uh, You know, up front, they're getting Alex McAllister back. He was not available for the opener. They get Marcus May back in the secondary. So there's two starters going into the season who didn't play their first game. Probably still questionable with Keanu Neal, who set out the opening win. But, you know, getting McAllister, Maybach, plus just the experience that a lot of new guys got in the win, you'll see a lot of faces, a lot of familiar faces, but definitely a lot of players. You know, they're a team that's obviously not going to come in here at all and be, you know, wowed by the Florida Gators. They're a team a year ago that obviously we played in a bowl game that put up 530 yards on us. Um, And... The key to that offense, as, as you guys know, it, it starts up front. They've got four returning old linemen um, with the boy that, that seems to be the guy that kind of triggers it at guard. But that experience really helps you. Thanks, as always, to Scott Carter, whose stories and blog you can check out every day on GatorZone.com. Before we call it a wrap, We promised you surprises and new twists when we started this podcast, and it's time to back up the talk with our first Gator Tales Trivia Challenge. Our next show will preview the trip to Kentucky, which carries a significant amount of history. Here's the question, and it's a little bit tricky, so pay close attention. Florida owns the longest active winning streak over a single opponent with 28 straight victories over the Wildcats in 28 consecutive years. What school holds the record for the longest winning streak over a single opponent in FBS history in terms of the years the streak lasted? Email your answer to GatorsPodcast at gmail.com or tweet it to at GatorsPodcast by 11.59 p.m. on Monday night and one randomly selected correct answer will win a $25 gift card to the Gator Sports Shop. That should keep you busy until things get revved up on Saturday with pregame coverage beginning at 4 o'clock on the Gator IMG Sports Network and kickoff set for 7 o'clock in the Swamp. Get your tickets now on GatorZone.com before they're gone. And if you can't make it out, you can watch live on ESPN2. Remember to check out our next show when it releases next Thursday leading up to Kentucky. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Thank you again so much for joining us. And until next time, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.